You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Please open your Bibles. We'll read together from Judges chapter 2, the verses 6 through 23. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who had outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Our text this morning is Ruth chapter 1, the verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived about t- there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning we begin to look at the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth, short book, beautiful book, beautiful story, 
And as we look at this account of a certain time in the history of God's people and what was going on there, sort of a, an in-depth look, zoning in, zooming in on one particular family, the first thing that needs to have our attention is the title of this book. That is, that it's named Ruth. And the question is, is this really the best title for this book? Should it be called the book of Ruth? I had the experience once of watching a an examination for a student, a seminary student, desiring to have permission to preach God's word in, in among the churches. And this student had been assigned a chapter from the book of Ruth. And during the course of this examination, I don't know if you've ever been witness to one of these. Basically, the student is there all alone. Surrounding him are a bunch of, of ministers and elders. And they all gang up on this one student and ask him the most difficult questions that they can think of. And so while this was going on with this student, one of the ministers there asked him about this chapter in the book of Ruth that he had been assigned to study, asked him, do you think that this book should be named Ruth? And the student thought for a while and then said, well, I'm not sure if it should be called Ruth, but it is. So it seems like a good name. And then the minister returned, well, I think it should be called the book of Boaz because it's really a story about Boaz and he becomes the kinsman redeemer and from the line of Boaz comes David and from the line of David comes Jesus Christ. And then another minister said, well, I think it should actually be called the book of Naomi because this book is all about Naomi. It starts with Naomi, keeps coming back to Naomi and finishes with Naomi near the end. And another minister piped up. Everyone seemed to need to get their word in and said, well, I think it should be called the book of David because that's what the book points to. And another one, of course, said, I think it should be called the book of Jesus Christ because ultimately it's all about him. And while all this was going on, the student was much relieved because he didn't have to answer any more questions about the book of Ruth. And so as you can tell from that story, the name of this book it can be quite controversial. Now, if I had to choose from any of the characters' names in this book, I would say that this book really is about Naomi. It starts with Naomi, starts with her husband, very quickly moves to her, and does, throughout the book, keep coming back to Naomi. Finishes with Naomi at every chapter and the book as well. But we do need to recognize that really this book is not about Ruth, ultimately. It's not about Naomi. It's not about Boaz. It's not about David. It is very tempting when you look at Old Testament narrative, the accounts of God's people in the Old Testament, to become super focused on the characters in the story. To look at what the characters are doing and thinking and, and how they're acting and to, to judge by that. Are they being good? Are they doing right? Are they doing wrong? What can we learn from what they're doing? And that is good to do. And that's why these accounts are given to us. So we can learn from the lives of God's people. But ultimately, this account, as every account of history that's given to us in God's word is ultimately about none none of the characters in the 
the account, but it's about God. This is given to us so that our attention will be drawn to Him. To see how is He at work here? How is He working in the lives of God's people? How is He caring for them? How is He disciplining them? How is He leading them on? And how, in the grand scheme of things, is He working out all things according to His plan? How is He going to use this account of a family that leaves Israel to work out His greater plan of bringing salvation to the world? That has our attention. And so how do we read a book like Ruth? Well, we read it to to get that sense of how God is at work. We have to understand this story in all of its fine details and in all of its greater application. And so as we go through, the point is not to uh, cherry-pick all sorts of moralistic applications and to see, oh, uh, you should be like Naomi and not like Ruth, or be like Ruth and not like, like Naomi. But rather, we need to understand the story. We need to we need to see ourselves in the story. We need to get right there into the sandals of the people who are living in this time. To consider what life was like for them so that we might consider also how God was at work. And so we need to get into the story and consider how does this relate to our world? How does this relate to how God is working in our world? How does this relate to how God is working in my life or in the life of my loved one? How does this relate to how God works in the midst of suffering? Or how God works in the midst of unfaithfulness? If you can understand this account, this story so well that it begins to resonate with your own life as well. And then you ask the question, and where Where in here do I see the grace of God at work? Then you can follow that answer right into the heart of God's love and God's kindness for His people. And so, this morning as we consider the first five verses of this book, we'll consider the loving and kind God. And we'll see that in this account, He empties Naomi. The loving and kind God empties Naomi. And so this account begins with the rejection of God. Where is God at the beginning? He's being rejected. And then we'll see the discipline of God. And finally, we'll consider the presence of God. Where in these first five five verses full of loss, full of unfaithfulness, full of sorrow, where do we see the grace of God at work? And so, first of all, we consider the rejection of God. Immediately when you read the beginning of this account, in this book of Ruth, you understand that there's a lot of suffering going on here. A lot of suffering. Naomi goes to this land of Moab, loses her husband, has her two sons marry foreign woman, and then loses them as well. So she's left in a foreign land, no relatives, no one to come and support her, no friends and family nearby. She suffers in a great way. And we, as 
people, human beings, fallen people, we have this knee-jerk reaction to suffering so often, don't we? We want to see the reason for it. We want to ask now, why is the suffering happening? Why? What did they do to deserve this suffering? Was this person sinning? Is God punishing them? Is that why God is causing this suffering? In a sense, deep down, a lot of the times we secretly wish that Job's friends, you remember Job, Job's friends came and said, Job, you're suffering because you're sinning. So you need to repent and then you'll stop suffering. And we kind of secretly wish that Job's friends were right, don't we? That that's the way that worked. That would make our lives so much easier. Then we could just label suffering means you're, you were sinning and God's punishing you. End of story. But we also know from God's word, the account of Job, for example. We know from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ that we cannot make that judgment. We're not called to do that. God's ways are wonderful and complex. And so we cannot see suffering and assume that that suffering is the result, the direct result of sin. God is directly punishing a certain sin in someone's lives. We are not God. We do not have his view of things. But yet, when we come to this account in the book of Ruth, this account of the life of the family of Elimelech, the the connection between unfaithfulness and suffering is right there in front of us. It's right there in front of us. In fact, the author is calling us to see that connection here. The author drives home the fact that in the midst of this suffering, there is also a lot of unfaithfulness going on. And the author drives that home three times in the very first sentence of this book. It's driven home three times for us. The first way is when it says, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. What were the days when the judges ruled like? What were they like? Was that a good time in Israel's history? time of faithfulness, time of joy in the Lord. It wasn't. It was a very unstable time in Israel's history, and it was a time of spiritual and social and political unrest and instability. It was ultimately, it was a time of unfaithfulness by God's people. And we read about that unfaithfulness in Judges 2. Very clearly laid out, this time of the Judges was all about Israel turning away from the Lord. And God sending their enemies against them and causing them to suffer. That's how it was given in Judges 2. God's people would sin. That would result in punishment from God. The people would cry out for help. And sometimes they were so stubborn they didn't cry out for help. And then God would come and rescue them. He would send them a judge and help them from their oppression and give them good times again. And then the people would forget God, and then the cycle would start again, over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. So that the end of the book describes the time simply in Joshua 21, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And so we see already in the very first statement in this book, this is a time of unfaithfulness of God's people. What does this tell us about the rest of this book? Well, we're set up to expect unfaithfulness, punishment, repentance, 
and restoration? Where are we going to see the grace of God at work? The second statement, still in the very first sentence, says that in this time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Now, that famine does describe for us why it was that Elimelech took his wife and his sons and left the land of Israel to go to Moab. But the context of Scripture reveals far more about this famine in the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, God told his people that if they were unfaithful to him, he would send them, among other things, famine. He would send them famine and the hardship and suffering that comes from famine to call them back to himself. In Deuteronomy 28, he says on the one hand that faithfulness on their part is going to result in seasons of of productivity and growth. But unfaithfulness is going to result in seasons where, and I quote from Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. And so we're living in the time, the unfaithful time of the judges, and there's a strong sense of of unfaithfulness here also in this mention of a famine. So where is this story headed? Well, the third statement in that first sentence shows us where this story is headed, and that's not in a good direction. Things only get worse as we continue there, and we learn that a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And we should just mention, first of all, that Bethlehem literally means house of bread. This was a very productive area in Israel. This was an area where they always had a good Barley harvest, but yet there is no harvest in this time. That's how devastating this famine is. And so devastating, in fact, that this man Elimelech decides that there is no future for him and his family here, so he's going to pick up and leave. Now, you may ask, what's so wrong with a man picking up and seeking greener pastures somewhere else? Sometimes in a certain area, it just becomes difficult, and so you feel the need to move on. And sometimes it's it's shown later that that move was a good move for you and your family. Isn't a man called to do what he can to support his wife and his two sons? If his family is starving, what is a man to do? Well, a man is called to support his wife and his sons. But a man is also called to be obedient to the Lord. He's called to support his wife and his children, but in the Lord's way and not through illegitimate means. There is a place to seek help, in other words, and there is a place not to seek help. And the country of Moab was most certainly not the country in which to seek help. The Moabites were Israel's enemy. They were Israel's sworn enemy. They had been a snare in Israel's side already when Israel had made their way out of Egypt. Balak, the king of Moab, had called on Balaam to curse the Israelites. He hated them so much. And then the Israelites themselves fell into the snare of indulging in sexual immorality with Moabite women and sacrificing to the gods of the Moabites. 
The Moabites served false gods. The Moabites were Israel's enemies. So strong was this animosity between the people of God and the people of Moab that in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, God said that no Moabite could join the assembly of Israel up to ten generations down the line. Had to wait ten generations before that person could be allowed into the assembly of Israel. And so Elimelech's move to Moab was not simply a move to a better place, to greener pastures, to better opportunities. What he was doing was leaving the promised land that God in his grace had given to his people and said, there you will find your life. There I will be with you. There I will look after you. If you don't obey me, I will send you famine to call you back. But I will look after you in the land of Israel. What Elimelech was doing was leaving that promised land and going to live in a foreign land with foreign gods. To put this in modern terms, Elimelech wasn't happy in the church. He was going to church every Sunday. He was finding that his life was just falling apart all around him. And so he thought, you know what? This isn't working out for me. I'm going to go to the mosque down the road and see if things will work out a little better once I'm there. Now, the verse says that Elimelech literally went to go sojourn in Moab. He went to go there for a short time. He wanted to live like a stranger in the land, but Elimelech was not supposed to be a stranger in the land. He was supposed to live in the land that God had given him. His name even meant, my God is king. He had a land. He had a king. And his place was with that king. But he rejected that king. And he rejected that gift. And he rejected that grace. And he went to live in Moab. He left for the greener pastures and the demonic worship of the people of Moab. So what's happening here in this first verse of this book? We're being painted a picture of unfaithfulness to God. A picture of sinfulness. A picture of rebellion. We said that we need to be asking ourselves the question all the time, where is the grace of God at work in this account? Where is the grace of God here? It's being rejected. So we now consider the discipline of God. Elimelech may have traded the Holy Land to find greener pastures elsewhere, but that is not what he received. He intended maybe only a short sojourn to improve the place of his family, but instead he and his family remained there. It's true. The path of unfaithfulness often looks like a small detour, but it ends up becoming a maze of ever-increasing misery. And that's what it was for Elimelech. And you get a hint of that, of already, uh, that things are really not well with this family When you consider the names of their two sons, Malon and Kilion, Elimelech has a beautiful name. My God is king. Naomi has a beautiful name, means pleasant. But the name Malon means sickly. And the name Kilion sounds like the word for failure. And so anyone reading this, a Hebrew reading this, would have said, what is going on with this family? What's with these names? There is something wrong here. And while his sons may have been the sickly and the failing ones, it was Elimelech who was the first to go the way of all flesh. And he dies. And he leaves his wife there, a widow in a foreign land. 
And you wonder, what was the relationship between Naomi and Elimelech? Did she fight with him on this decision? Was she complicit in this move? Did she think that this would have been a good idea as well? Was it her desire that these better prospects would be there? There would be better prospects for her kids. And did she compel Elimelech to leave? We don't know. We don't know. The author doesn't tell us. But he does tell us what Elimelech did as the head of his household. And he left Israel. And when he died, he left his household a headless household. And notice there in the narrative that there's a switch. No longer is this account already in the by the third verse. No longer is this account about Elimelech. But now it's about Naomi. Elimelech is introduced in verse 3 as Naomi's husband. Naomi becomes the center of this account. And so Naomi then, bereft, bereaved of her husband, abides in Moab along with her sons Malon and Kilion. And as if it wasn't bad enough, these two sons of hers decide to go out and to take Moabite wives. Now as it turns out, one of these wives is a particular, is a woman of particularly fine character, but it doesn't change the fact that it was clearly against God's law to marry women from foreign nations. It was against the covenant that they had made with, that God had made with them by circumcision. They were not to take wives from among foreign nations, but they did. And they lived in that land ten more years. And after ten more years there, there is more suffering as the wombs of their wives are barren. No children come from these marriages. Naomi has no husband and there is no grandchild to comfort her in her old age. And following those ten difficult years, Naomi's sons also die. And she's left a widow with nothing but two foreign daughter-in-laws. And so at the very beginning, this account and the author of this, and the Holy Spirit, calls us to look at Naomi, to see what's happening to her. Look at her suffering. and Consider her grief. Feel the sorrow that's been caused by her husband's unfaithfulness and that of her son's. The word to describe the summary in verse 5 where it says, So Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The word is bereaved. That's what it is to be bereaved. You're left without. Naomi is bereaved. The author calls us to see Naomi here. To open our eyes wide and to see her in her suffering. Don't turn your eyes from this widow who's lost her husband and her two sons and is living in a foreign land. Don't turn your eyes from her suffering, but look at her. Consider her. See her standing at the grave of that last son who has passed away. See her standing there with no family to comfort her, with no priest, with no Levite, with no elder, with no one to come and comfort her with the promises of God. Naomi expresses how she feels at the end of chapter 1. She describes her situation to her old townsfolk in Bethlehem. She says she's empty. 
God has emptied her. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Was this all her fault? No. Was she complicit in some way? Maybe. Is she experiencing pain? Absolutely. Should we stand here and condemn Naomi? Brothers and sisters, we have to recognize the truth of the statement, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. If it wasn't for the grace of God, Naomi would be bereft not only of her past, feel empty in the present, but she'd have no future either. We're called here to look at Naomi, but then to turn our gaze upwards and look to our God. We're called here to look at the suffering and the unfaithfulness we see in this world, and then to look upwards and to look for the love and the kindness of our God. Where is the God of love and kindness at work? Here. You might ask, as we move to our last point, is the God of love and kindness at work here? You look into this unfaithfulness of the house of Elimelech as they reject God. You see the suffering that comes, especially to Naomi, as a result. And you might think, God is not at work here. He has left this family alone. But that would be the wrong conclusion. And we would be all the poorer if we were to stop at this point in this account. The rest of the book is going to be a vindication of God's love and kindness to this family and particularly to this woman, Naomi. Yes, we see lots of sin and lots of misery here, but we are going to see lots of grace. So where is the God of love and kindness at work? Well, first of all, God is present even here in its unfaithfulness and this suffering in his providence. If we're to see God at work at any time, then we must, first of all, confess that everything is in God's control. God is in control, also here. If he is not, then he is not God. The believer confesses that nothing comes to us, nothing comes to anyone by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. This is God directing this world. Now, this is not, I repeat, a call for us to find unfaithfulness in all suffering, to find that direct link. The true God works in mysterious ways, and the presence of suffering is not always the direct result of unfaithfulness. Read the book of Job. The point in this book is not to cause everyone who suffers to assume that their suffering has been directly caused by some moral fault of theirs. As if God is just playing some, some game. You know that game at the arcade where the thing pops up from the hole and then you whack it on the head? That's not what God is doing with his people in the world. He's not waiting for some unfaithfulness and then whacking them on the head. God's ways are higher than our ways. 
And his purposes are higher and greater than what our eyes can see or what our hearts can conceive. But at the same time, everything comes from his hand. In fact, it was a a small view of God, a view that a limited view of God that caused Elimelech to leave the land of Israel in the first place. It was because Elimelech couldn't consider the higher purposes of God. He thought, enough with God, I'm going to leave this, I'm going to go to a foreign land. Well, that doesn't make any sense because God is the God of this whole world. You can't run from God and run to Moab. He's there as well. As this family goes to Moab, God goes with them. He goes as God, in control of everything, and a God of grace. His family leaves him, but he does not leave them. They have a short-term view of how to make things better, but God has a long-term view of how to make things better. And he works for their good, even in their bad. He is the God of the long view. We are the people of the short view. We do not always see things the way that God does, but as his people, we're called to trust in his ways, that he is in control and he's leading all things by his fatherly hand, by his loving and kind hand. And that calls us to a second place to see God present in his love and kindness, and that is in his plan that he's working out. Naomi cannot see this and the reader can barely discern it, but yet it's there. There's a small, slight whisper of this this grand plan, this beautiful plan that God has, this beautiful plan that God is working out and will bring to completion, to fulfillment, this plan for the coming of Jesus Christ. And where do you hear that plan resonate the most? You hear it in the announcement of the unfaithfulness that happens in the first verse of this book. We read there that this was the time when the judges ruled. And the reader, as they hear this, says, well, what happened with that time? Did it end? Did the judges not rule anymore? And the first readers of this book would have known, no, they don't. They don't rule anymore. Instead, Israel is ruled by a king and ruled by a king after God's own heart. Following this time, King David came along. And because he was a man after God's own heart, the people also enjoyed a time of refreshment and renewal, a time of obedience and trust in the Lord. And we hear and we know that even it didn't, things didn't pan out for the kings who were to come, that the kings ultimately became like the judges and there was this cycle of unfaithfulness and punishment. We know that a greater king than even David came along. And he has ultimately and finally restored things for God's people. The King Jesus Christ came. And so we hear in the days when the judges ruled, we know that there is an end to this cycle of unfaithfulness for God's people. And it finds its end in Jesus Christ. And second, when we hear about this famine, then the question that we ask is, is this famine going to end? Is God going to return to his people? Are they going to repent? Is he going to feed them again? We will find out that he does. He returns to his people. But then again, his people will fall away and God will return. And that's what he does. And he will continue to do that until he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And finally, in the last verse, we hear that this man from Bethlehem in Judah has come. 
from Bethlehem in Judah. And immediately we think, well, there's another man that came from Bethlehem in Judah. And his name was David. And he was a great king. So it's not only bad that comes from this house of bread experiencing famine, but good things come from there as well. And in the greater revelation of God's history, we know that a king much greater than David also came from Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem. This king was Jesus Christ. He came to restore the fortunes of God's people. He came to bring God's people to their father, to reconcile them to him and to bind them to their father in faith. And so the small whisper of God's plan is an announcement of the third way that God is present and God is present in this account in his grace. You cannot escape the providence of God. You cannot escape the plan of God. And Naomi This woman upon God has set his affection out of mere grace, out of his own good pleasure, for his own glory. For her, there is no escaping the love and the kindness of her God as well. Naomi was left there in Moab without a husband, without two sons. But she was never left without a God. Far away in a distant land, he was with her. In her unfaithfulness, In her pain, he was guiding her. He is a God of grace. He is the loving and kind God. Even in the midst of unfaithfulness, God works. God's grace is at work. Even in the midst of sin. Even in the midst of suffering. Of course God is at work in the midst of sin and in the midst of suffering. Isn't that why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world in the first place? Hasn't God come and set His love out of mere grace upon bereaved widows living in a foreign land with no claim to make for their own, nothing but their own fault to recall before the throne of God, but God in His grace comes to find them, comes to find us, comes to find you, calls you back to Him sets His love and His kindness upon you. Calls us back so that we might find everything in Him. This is the God that is at work in Naomi's life. This is the God that is at work also in your life and in the lives of all of His people. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.